Second reading is from Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are people who need your spirit. We are people who so often live as those who have been imprisoned under the law. Let us hear good news this evening. Jesus, may we find each one of us that it is your voice that we hear, calling us deeper into trust, to taste of your love again or for the first time. We ask it in your name. Well, this evening we're taking our text from the Galatians reading. And I'm struck by what Paul has to say about the imprisonment of the law. For those of us that were good Sunday school children, that may seem a bit striking, doesn't it? That the law might be a prison. And it's even more interesting when you realize that he's not just writing to Jewish people. He's not just talking to people who had the Mosaic Law. He's saying that there is something about law that is just written into our stomachs that we can't get away from. So think about it. Thou shalt seize the day. Thou shalt honor your mother and your father. Thou shalt have some Swedish designed furniture, but make sure that everyone knows it's not from Ikea. Thou shalt call thy grandmother once a month, week. Thou shalt give your children a better life than you had. Thou shalt be a more engaged father. Thou shalt be a more patient and present mother. Thou shalt be so attractive as to get a spouse. Thou shalt live more simply, whatever in the world that could mean. Thou shalt maintain your honor, be accepted and respected by the community of people to which you so desperately want to belong. Thou shalt wear all the summer trends, but make it look effortless, almost accidental. Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Thou shalt not enjoy music that everyone else has generally agreed upon to be terrible. Thou shalt watch all the right TV shows or not have a TV and be sure to let everyone know that you don't have a TV. 
Thou shalt read all the classic works of literature and understand them from a post-feminist feminist or critical race theory perspective. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt be authentic, be your best self, and also somehow coexist with other authentic best selves. This is just a small sampling of the laws that imprison us. And they are to say nothing of the lawyer that exists in each one of our heads that has a slightly more individualistic message. It's a little more personal, isn't it? You idiot. Why did you trust him again? It's just going to hurt you. How could you be so stupid? If they only knew blank about me, they'd never want to be my friend. What if my kids grow up and don't want to have anything to do with me? Why do I even set resolutions for myself to work out more or eat better? I'm just going to fail every time. I deserve to be alone. And what do all of these things have in common, all of these laws and all of these little statements that our internal lawyers like to make? What do they all say to us? You're not good enough. You're not good enough. If you think that you're alone in feeling not good enough, the self-help industry apparently is a $10 billion annual a year industry. Annual year? Yeah, there we go. Annual industry in the United States alone. 10 billion with a B. Cosmetic plastic surgery has risen by 115% in the United States since the year 2000. Interestingly, suicide has gone up by over 30% since the year 1999. This is to say nothing of the smaller promises of the fixits that we all buy into daily. Eat at this hip new restaurant, date that person, buy that chair, Say your prayers every day, quit your corporate job and work at a nonprofit, and then guess what? You'll be good enough. This is what makes the world go around, is promises of being good enough. All the way from how to choose a career to how to get rid of dandruff. The problem is that we won't. If someone packages it sexy enough, somehow we buy into the idea over and over again that we will somehow, if we get this one thing, be good enough. But if experience can teach us anything, it's that we won't be. It won't change anything. There's always another thou shalt or a thou shalt not around the corner. And Paul's point in his letter to the Galatians about the law can be summed up in three things. One, we all live under the law. We all live under the law, whether it's the Jewish law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, or whether it's the law of other cultures or subcultures, like being a good Portlander or being a good parent or being a good psychiatrist or business owner. We all have these cultures that we inhabit that have very clear parameters about what it means to be good enough to be a part of it, don't we? That's number one. We all live under the law. Number two. We all fail to uphold the law, even if it's the law and the lawyer of our own mind. Even if we don't believe that God exists, and we don't care what he has to say, we place laws on ourselves that we can't even keep. And number three, 
The law will never bring us life. Ever. But here's the hard truth lurking behind all of that. And it's very sort of counterintuitive to our current culture, which is that the law is right. You aren't good enough. None of us are. Whether it's the law of the mommy bloggers or the law of Progressive Portland or the law of Moses, we have all failed to live up to the standard. And if we were to end here, this is basically the worst news possible. And for those of us that have been in the church for a while, I, I think it's important to remind ourselves that this is the end of the line for people that don't know Christ. When the church gets accused of being judgmental, the church shouldn't stop being uh, any, any more Christian. It needs to become more Christian, right? When the church is being judgmental, it's not living into the truth of the gospel. And we have to realize that for people that don't know Christ, the way that the world works, even in coexist Portland, there's a very specific type of conformity to our non-conformity. And if you don't get it right, you're out. And this is why we all work so hard at minimizing our failures, locking them away, bending the rules, tweaking the deck of cards, so that if we can't quite erase our guilt, we'll at least get the spotlight over on someone else and magnify theirs. This is why internet shaming, to choose just one example of our behavior, is so prevalent and just so delicious. Someone says something stupid on the internet and we all just, there's blood in the water. Because it is the one moment that we get to forget how spectacular our failures are as we band together to point the finger at somebody else. It's like a release valve. Because the rest of our days are spent with that woman from Game of Thrones walking behind us with her bell chanting, shame, 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 shame. Everywhere we go, she's there. Shame, shame, shame. But the situation is actually worse than that. It's not just that we're all under the law, though we are. It's not just that we all fail to live up to the law's standards, though we do. It's not just that the law has not, will not, and cannot ever give life to anyone, though it hasn't, it won't, and it can't. But we are also, every last one of us, law junkies. We're addicted to self-justification. We cannot let go of this elusive idea of finding a way to make ourselves right, to make self-justification a live option. Which is why, though most of us sitting in this room have probably been Christians for most of our lives, we keep figuring out new ways to earn our relationship with God. And we instead keep finding ourselves back in the dark prison cell of the law. We started to do the Christian thing, but always with an eye out toward avoiding punishment or gaining reward. There's this great scene in Arrested Development where outside the courthouse, one of the main characters, Lindsay, has staged a protest to remove this enormous stone rendering of the Ten Commandments. She's not a moral high grounder, she just happened to break a heel on it and it really made her mad, so she got the troops fired up to get the Ten Commandments 
you know, thrown out of court, so to speak. And so, of course, the broad comedy that it is, as, as they're lifting this giant stone of the Ten Commandments with a crane, it comes crashing down on Barry, their inept lawyer's convertible. And so when Barry comes out of the courthouse to find this enormous tablet of the law of God has crushed his car right where he would be sitting, he turns to the sky and he says, I will obey your will. I will lead a good life. And then he glances under the, the tablet on his smashed windshield, windshield and he pulls out a parking ticket. Well, to help with this then. And wanders off. We'll work for a little while at saying our prayers every day or attending worship every week or tithing or memorizing the creed or serving the homeless a warm meal. But there are attachments to that, aren't there? By golly, our kids better not walk away from the faith. And if we're going to help the poor, then our mortgage better be paid up and our car better not get in a wreck. It better not break down. We're doing exactly what Barry does. He just shortened the cycle. We're back under the law, a law that we can't keep, a law that won't bring life. And so we still spend our days with that woman behind us with the bell chanting, shame, shame, shame. And then occasionally we get a brilliant idea to ring the bell for somebody else so we can have a little break. And we point out the shame of others. But Jesus... But Jesus came. And he pulled you out of that line that you've been walking in your whole life. And he walked in your place with that horrible woman at her bell, yelling behind him, shame, 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 all the way to Golgotha. And with the flog of the whip, every whip, the buttoned-up religious crowd shouted, shame, shame, shame. He says that sinners and cheaters and whores are forgiven just by having faith. Shame. And the power-hungry pagan Romans, with every strike of the nail into his flesh, smirk, shame. Another loser ground to dust under the power of the law of Rome, shame. And with every rattly, gasping breath that Jesus could suck down, Satan, the eternal enemy, sorry, not the eternal enemy, the enemy of God's people laughed deliriously as he had in those early years in the garden. Shame, he says. Mercy is for the weak. Shame. And what did Christ do? He took it. The weight of our shame crushed him. And he took it. And Jesus was the only one who never broke the law. Never once did he assert himself with pride. Never once did he covet his neighbor's things. Never once did he reduce a woman with lust into a few physical attributes. Never once did he fail to love God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and all his strength. And never once did he fail to love his neighbor as himself. He was perfect and utterly filled with humility and joy. 
He wasn't accommodating to the rich and powerful or condescending to the poor. With each person that he encountered, he saw an individual weighed down and imprisoned by shame and failure, dried up and parched by a futile attempt at life under the law. And he says to the thirsty, I am the living water. And he sees people trying to eke out a living under the law, and they're starving. And he says, I am the bread of life. And he sees people who have convinced themselves that they are alive under the law, and they're dead. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says to all of us, come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down, and I will give you rest. Paul talks about this to the Galatians in a different set of theological categories that are every bit as rich. By faith, he says. Not the law. No attempts here. Just trust. You are all children of God. In the original text, Paul actually says sons of God, and that's not him being sexist. It's him putting a finer point on this idea of adoption into God's family. Because in that culture, the sons were given the inheritance. Paul is very explicitly writing to men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, all of the categories that we use to bludgeon each other under the law. And he tells them, you are all sons, full heirs, children that will inherit in Christ. Which means that if you're in Christ, you're not just forgiven. It's not just that your debts have been erased but you have been given Christ's perfect law-keeping record. In faith and baptism, Paul tells us, that orange jumpsuit that told everyone that you were a convicted felon condemned to die is gone. Those chains that weighed you down with shame and humiliation, gone. The piling on of layer upon layer of filthy, mildewy, moldy attempts at law-keeping is over. You have been clothed with Christ. What could the law say to you to entice you to come back? You are clothed with the transfigured, resurrected Christ. What could the bell woman say to you? Shame? No. You are clothed with the royal robes of the Son of God. What could your inner lawyer tell you? That somehow you'll figure out a way to pay for it all? To pay for these new clothes? No. You can never afford it. And besides, they're not for sale. Your money is no good here. Your attempts at self-improvement are no good here. Your good moral works are no good here. Your best efforts are a dirty sock. Just put it over there with the pile of garbage and come and put on Christ. Friends, we implore you, put your faith in Christ and come feast at his table. All that's required is that you set aside your meticulous bookkeeping of the law. Which means that we have to let go of all the things that we think are best about ourselves. All that bookkeeping, it's a habit now. And we have to let it go. For, as Robert Capon, that now-past priest, says, if the world could have been saved by bookkeeping, 
it would have been saved by Moses, not Jesus. The law was just fine, and God gave it a good thousand years or so to see if anyone could pass a test like that. But when nobody did, when it became perfectly clear that there was no one who was righteous, not even one, that both Jews and Gentiles alike were all under the power of sin, God gave up on salvation by the books. He canceled everybody's records in the death of Jesus and rewarded us all, equally and fully, with a new creation in the resurrection of the dead. And therefore, the only adverse judgment that falls on the world falls on those who take their stand on a life God cannot use, rather than on the death that he can. Only the winners lose, because only the losers can win. The reconciliation simply cannot work any other way. Evil cannot be gotten out of the world by reward and punishment. That just points up the shortage of sheep and turns God into one more score-evening goat. The only way to solve the problem of evil is for God to do what in fact he did, to take it out of the world by taking it into himself, down into the forgettery of Jesus' dead human mind, and close the books on it forever. That way, the kingdom of heaven is for everybody. Hell is reserved only for those idiots who insist on keeping non-existent records.